I've almost begun to think that it would be better if we didn't have to deal with Luke's concept of Jesus. Now, before you rush ahead and think that that is a statement from Bill Bagwell that needs to be remembered, I would rather you know this, that that is a quote from Eugene Peterson. Do any of you remember who Eugene Peterson is? If you have a copy of the Bible that is a paraphrase in the vernacular of our culture, it's called the message. Eugene Peterson is the one who wrote that scripture. He is the one that copied every word of it and rephrased it so that we would understand it. And he, after completing writing the Gospel of Luke in our vernacular, said, I've almost begun to think that it would be better if we didn't have to deal with Luke's concept of Jesus. When Jesus called his disciples, think on this. They left everything. They left everything and followed Jesus. When Jesus gave instructions to his disciples and sent them out in order to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to spread the good news of Christ, he gave them instructions, carry nothing with you. Nothing for the journey. In the 14th chapter of Luke, it is recorded that Jesus actually spoke these words. No one can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. I'm making this hard on us this morning, right? But it brings me back around to what Eugene Peterson said. And I understand better what he meant. He said, I've almost begun to think that it would be better if we didn't have to deal with Luke's concept of Jesus. You remember that Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. That's a direct quote that Luke put on paper. And do you remember how Jesus began his ministry in preaching? Blessed are you poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. Now, we want to spiritualize the material that we've received or at least to relativize it. At least that's the way I deal with this. Don't you? Because I think to myself, surely Jesus didn't mean that. And so I have to adjust things and mold them into a way that fits with who I am. We all do that. In fact, I have a question as to whether Matthew is doing that. I think perhaps this is good evidence that Matthew, we know that Matthew was influenced by Luke and Luke was influenced by Matthew and their writing of the scripture. Some of the things that they wrote were verbatim the same. They at least had a source that was very similar. But I think maybe 
Matthew was leaning on Luke more than Luke was leaning on Matthew. Because do you remember how Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount rather than as it was recorded by Luke? It was recorded by Matthew that Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew adding perhaps those words in spirit to quantify this measure that we are not able to understand. We are uncomfortable with the idea that money has anything to do with faith and religion other than the fact, other than the fact that we want to see the resources that we receive as being a sign that God has blessed us. How many times have I thought this in my prayers? Lord, thank you for what you've given to me. That's a very wonderful prayer I want to believe to pray. And yet, if we set only the idea that God blesses us in these material ways, then we get a perspective that is askew because it looks at those who are not so blessed and it makes us think we are in God's favor even more perhaps we're uncomfortable with the idea that money has anything to do with faith and religion but Really, the reason is, I think, because we want to be on good terms with God. We want to be on good terms with God because, frankly, we want what money will bring. We want new homes. We want new cars. We enjoy getting new computers. We enjoy gadgets of all sorts and games and tools and access and food, the best that there is to eat. We like the things that money might bring. We received a letter this week from Publishers Clearinghouse. <laughs> it was it was sent to us by name. Everything in it said that they fully expect us to perhaps be millionaires shortly. I'm telling you, this is the truth. Wow, just the thought of it. How blessed we would be if we had more is the way in which we think. And Jesus thinks in such different manners. For everywhere he looks, he sees that God is at, at work in the world and present especially with those who are in need. Do you remember who Jim Wallace is? Jim Wallace is the founder of Sojourner's Community and the editor for a time of the Sojourner's Magazine, 
which is a justice and mercy venture in Washington, D.C. that has spread its canopy over this nation and even in other parts of the world. Jim Wallace, early in his ministry, took his Bible and he took a pair of scissors just to see what the effect would be and he cut out all of the verses, all 908 verses that have anything in the Bible to do with warning about the evils of wealth, the evils that come into life because of the riches that we might receive. Of course, you can imagine that if you cut nearly a thousand verses out of the Bible, that your Bible would be in shreds. And I do not doubt that he still has that Bible even today as a reminder of those things that we would rather not think about. Jim Baker of PTL and Heritage Theme Park fame in past years lived a lifestyle that by all measures was excessive. And this is not meant to to target Jim Baker so much, but you know some of the stories that surrounded his lifestyle, don't you? As this one to whom we gave prominence because across Christendom, we promoted him by way of our viewership of what his way of thinking was to this high place that was surrounded with such grandeur and such luxury. Um, I don't know whether it's true or not, but I understand that even the, the, the fixtures in his bathrooms in his house were all gold-plated. Now, that may be just folktale. I don't know. But the truth was that that he was so caught up in that lifestyle that he didn't realize what was going on and that he was tried on embezzlement charges and put in prison because of it and served a number of years. He is now back out and I don't know exactly what to do fully with Jim Baker because he is on this side of it and seems to be dipping his toes once again into the nature of what had caused such problems in his life earlier. But I will give him credit for this. I will give him credit for this. Jim Baker wrote a book just after he had this encounter with the law. And he entitled that book, I was wrong. I was wrong. And he was referring specifically to his obsession with wealth. I was wrong, he said. Now, when Jesus told this parable, of course, we know that he pulled no punches. He let us have it. 
There was this rich man who was engaging in conspicuous consumption, feasting day in and day out. Anybody who walked past his gate could look in and see that the table was full to overflowing. Anything that he didn't eat was simply pushed to the side. The dogs of the street came and feasted on what they could get there. The gate was meant to keep both the riffraff at bay, and yet let them see what's going on <laughs> from a distance. Lazarus lay at his gate, this poor man covered in sores. He, he wished for the scraps that the dogs could get at at the table. He wasn't allowed to go through that gate. The dogs could slip through and get what they could clean up there. But Lazarus was outside the gate. He and the dogs were really in a very similar situation. And as Jesus tells the story, he moves it along very quickly. He says that Lazarus died and was carried into the arms of Abraham. And the rich man died too who had been feasting at the table. And the rich man was buried, I'm sure, in a very proper way, in a proper tomb. Jesus says he went to Hades, this place of death and this eternal destruction. And the rich man was dealing with torment in his life. Now, here, let's put this in stained glass because it will make it a little easier on us to participate in the story. If we can distance ourselves from it just a bit, it will make it easier for us to handle what is going on there. Um, the idea of the chasm between Lazarus's care and the rich man's suffering is enormous. No matter how you picture it, it is enormous. This is something that I don't focus on with my preaching. In fact, if there's one thing that I will not be accused of when I leave Pittman Park, it's being a hellfire and brimstone preacher. <laughs> I know that's the case. I say that to you with some reservation because I chose, I intentionally have chosen that path. But I will say to you, that I do so with great risk, with great risk. And I say this very honestly and straightforward with you today because I will have to give answer just as you will have to give answer to the one who told this parable. Does my life 
reflect honestly my understanding, my complete understanding of what is at stake. Jesus never lauds Lazarus' faith. There's nothing about Lazarus' faith in this. If you think to yourself, Lazarus must have been a good man, I don't know where you got that information because there's no indication that Lazarus was a good man. I mean, the poor can be good, but the poor can be scoundrels too. The rich can be good, but they can be scoundrels as well. And this story is not so much about the goodness of Lazarus at all, nor is it about the evil nature of the rich man, except for the fact that the rich man does not seem to even appear to know that Lazarus is there. This is what the parable is about. Because of his situation of not knowing his surroundings, the rich man has ended up in a place that he doesn't want to be, and we don't want to be either. And Lazarus is in the loving arms of Father Abraham. The situation was dire. And the rich man calls for assistance. Just as he might of any servant, he suggests that Lazarus be sent to dip his, water in, his finger in water and to place it on his tongue so that he can have some, some rest and some peace from this terrible thirst that is engulfing his life. And yet the chasm is too great. And so the rich man says, well, at least send a warning to my family, my brothers. And Abraham says, they won't listen. And then the rich man, almost before Charles Dickens got a hold of this idea of the power of ghosts or the power of those that might return from the dead. <laughs> the rich man says, but if somebody returns from the dead, they will listen. And Abraham says, if they won't listen to the prophets, they're not going to listen to anyone. Here, no ghosts are permitted. Jesus says you have the scripture. I'm thinking of Jim Wallace again right now and that Bible that he has in a corner of his home that is in tatters because of the 908 verses that have to do with the warnings that you and I tend to look away from. The truth is that we have difficulty seeing the poor. We have difficulty visualizing the poor because we separate ourselves at so many angles from being able to really observe what's happening in their lives. I read in the paper just a couple of weeks ago that Dick Yarborough is re-releasing that book that he wrote about the Olympics and they call it a game, I think it is, or they call them games and they call them games. And 
it occurred to me on this 25th anniversary of the Atlanta Olympics that the thing that I most remember about those games is Maynard Jackson, who was the mayor at the time. Do you remember in the preparations for the intake of all these international travelers that were coming to Atlanta, one of the things that Maynard Jackson said was, and this was particularly instructed to one group of poor people in Atlanta. He said, you got to get your couches off your front porches. In fact, he made it law. He made it law. Because he wanted to present Atlanta in the very best light. Now, there are many, many good things about Manor Jackson. But I take issue with him on that one. Because we don't need for the poor simply to be out of sight. In fact, Jesus wishes to put them in the forefront here of our eyes. It's too late for the rich man in this story, but for us there is time yet for us to be able to see. I was involved with the Salvation Army over a number of years in other communities, and particularly I remember a situation in which an enormous estate was turned over to the Salvation Army. I believe it was in Dublin. There was someone who so was filled with love for what the Salvation Army was doing that in their estate, it wasn't a huge estate, but in their estate, they had given Salvation Army the lion's share of what they had at their death. $88,000 given to the Salvation Army. And I thought, who would, who would have known to do this unless they were paying attention to what the Salvation Army was doing? <clears throat> we had a dear person drop by the church office Saturday a week ago. Sue and I had come by the church, church office for me to do one more little thing in the office and as as we were here we were trying not to be noticed because we were headed out of town on Sunday on a little vacation and didn't want to be troubled but as is always the case God sends somebody that is in need when we think we are the least prepared to offer assistance and this dear soul came into the church office and she said, do you remember me? And I had to, to say to her, I, I do remember you. I cannot remember your name. Could you help me? She said, it's been a long, long time since I've been here. And I said, I do know that. Years, in fact, since you've been here. She said, yes. She said, it has been a long time since I've been here. She said, I'm I'm." I'm in a place of need right now. She said, in fact, she said, I, I'm living in my car. Um, we had a conversation. I said, well, I said, 
the first thing I said is, Wendy's not here. <laughs> Wendy is usually the one to do this. She's so gracefully a part of the church in that way. But I said that and I thought, that doesn't get me off the hook. Um, and so Sue and I were able to pull together a little bit to, to help this precious soul. I said, where are you going? She said, well, I'm leaving. She said, I, she said I'm headed to Atlanta. She said, I said, do you, have, do you have family there? And she said, no, I don't have family, but it's a bigger place, and I think there may be a greater opportunity for me to get help there. And we began talking to her about the local homeless shelter. Dale, you work with that so, so much there, and we tried to send her in that direction. I'm not really sure exactly what she finally ended up doing, but she was determined to hit the road because she was wanting to find help and to start up in a new way. And I thought to myself, I thought to myself, how many of these people, how many of these people exist in our world? And we never see them. We never see them because we're so busy with our own chosen path. And our own envelopes from Publishers Clearinghouse, you know, that we have this idea of what we are expecting to receive from God to the exclusion of what God may have intended. These parables are tough, tough, I tell you. And I think they're meant to be that way. Will we pay attention? Will we see who God is putting in our path? Here's another quote. This one was shared with me just about a week ago. It is from N.T. Wright. He said the parables are not abstract teaching. They weren't earthly stories with heavenly meanings. The whole point of Jesus' work was to bring heaven to earth, to bring God's future into the present and make it stick here. So is it. <laughs> I mean, is it sticking?